Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another evening lecture with Francis Tavern Museum. Uh, if you are joining us this evening uh, live, you will be able to submit any questions you have for our speaker into the Q&A box or into the chat as well. If you have any issues during the lecture, feel free to contact me via those as well. And we will try to get to as many questions as we can. So feel free to submit those throughout the lecture as, as we're speaking. Uh, don't hold on to them to the end and potentially forget them. I will be monitoring it the whole time and we will be getting to those just at the end. As always, the views of our speakers are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of Sons of the Revolution in the state of New York or its Francis Tavern Museum. Well, let me introduce to you tonight's speaker. Major General Jason Q. Bohm is a Marine with more than 30 years of service. An infantryman by trade, he has commanded at every level from platoon commander to commanding general in peacetime and war. Bohm also served in several key staff positions including as strategic planner with the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Director of the Marine Corps Expeditionary Warfare School, House Director, Museum Marine Corps, Office of Legislative Affairs, U.S. House of Representatives, and Chief of Staff of U.S. Naval Striking and Support Forces, NATO. Bohm has a, master, a bachelor's degree in marketing, a master's in military studies, and a master's in national security studies. He has written several articles for the Marine Corps Gazette, and won various writing awards from the Marine Corps Association. And this evening, he will be here speaking to us about his book, Washington's Marines, The Origins of the Corps and the American Revolution, 1775 to 1777. So I am now going to turn it over to our speaker. Well, thank you very much, Sharon. Good evening, all of you, and thank you so much for allowing me to join you this evening to share some insights on Washington's Marines. Now, I particularly want to commend all of you for helping to keep our great nation's history alive. And again, a special thanks to uh, Sarah Nishaw for uh, her kind invitation to allow me to speak with you. Uh, I understand we have an hour, so I'll speak for about 35 to 40 minutes and then open the floor for questions. So uh, many people are familiar with the uh, honorable service, selfless sacrifice, and the warfighting proudness of today's United States Marines. But very few know about the Corps' humble beginnings and, and how, like our brothers in the Continental Army, Navy, state militia groups, and privateers, contributed to the winning of our nation's independence and the preservation of our freedoms. The roots of the American Revolution could be traced back to the French and Indian War from 1756 to 1763, in which England, France, and Spain vied for control of the North American continent. Although the British and Americans prevailed, the victory in providing for the enduring defense of the American colonies came at a very high cost. So the mother country thought it was only right that the colonists bear their fair share of the cost particularly since Americans were only paying about 120th of the taxes being paid by those back in England. But the independently minded Americans pushed back on several imposed taxes, particularly when levied with prop without proper representation in the government. Although neither country sought a war, conflict was inevitable. On April 19, 1775, Captain John Parker formed a company of Minutemen on the Lexington Green to face off against 700 British soldiers and Marines. Before the day was over, the Americans had placed the British in Boston under siege. But the victory on land was only half the equation. America's a maritime nation with an extensive coastline, 
and countless lakes, rivers, and canals that can be used to quickly move people and things. America would need men who could fight and win on land and sea if they hope to win and defeat uh, one of the most powerful nations of the world. This became evident in mid-June of 1775 during an event that author James Finmore Cooper called the Lexington of the Sea. Principal British supplies and reinforcements had to be transported 3,000 miles across the Atlantic. This proved to be timely, expensive, and dangerous. So British leadership sought closer local solutions in the West Indies, the Southern colonies, and the area between Boston and Nova Scotia that would become the state of Maine. British Admiral Graves sent two merchant vessels loaded with flour and other food supplies and guarded by the armed schooner Margareta to the town of Machias in this area. Local patriots captured the two merchant vessels, but the uh, Margareta escaped. The Americans grabbed pitchforks and muskets, boarded the merchantmen, and gave chase. The resultant Battle of Machias, or what some have referred to as the Battle of the Margareta, resulted in an American victory in what became the first naval engagement of the American Revolution. Four days later, Colonel William Prescott led approximately 1,600 Americans up Breed's Hill on the Charleston Peninsula, resulting in a British victory, but at a very high cost. Days later, Washington assumed command of the Continental Army outside Boston. The immediacy of the crisis at Boston focused the Congress's efforts on establishing the Army first, but it would soon need to address the need for a Navy and Marines. Not possessing either at the time, Congress leveraged a temporary stopgap in the use of privateers or sanctioned pirates, in which private merchantmen were converted into warships and manned by civilian crews to capture British shipping on the high seas. Privateers had some positive impact on capturing British supplies, but many were in the business for personal gain. Their actions were rarely coordinated with ground forces, and Washington had no control over In fact, they became a draw on manpower and other resources needed by the Army, Navy, and Marines later in the war. Washington quickly realized that the privateers alone were insufficient to blockade the British in Boston being resupplied and reinforced. So out of necessity, he created his own Navy using soldiers to fill the role of sailors and Marines. Colonel John Glover from Marblehead, Massachusetts provided Washington with his first ship named Ahana for Glover's wife. And Washington's Navy soon grew to six ships. Although they had some early successes, the challenges associated with building a pickup team like that soon came to the forefront. One of Washington's agents described the situation this way. The people on board the Brigantine Washington are in general discontent and have agreed to do no duty on board said vessels and say that they enlisted to serve in the army and not as Marines. Benedict Arnold had a similar experience a year later when he assigned soldiers to man the freshwater fleet he built on Lake Champlain to fight the Battle of El Four Island to block British advances from Canada. Arnold described, we have a wretched motley crew, the Marines, the refuse of every regiment and the seamen, few ever wet with salt water. Recognizing these challenges, Congress was forced to act when it received an intelligence report on the 5th of October, 1775, 
of two unprotected ships loaded with military stores head into Quebec. Congress assigned a committee of three, consisting of John Adams from Massachusetts, Silas Dean from Connecticut, and John Langdon from New Hampshire to address the issue. They developed a plan to have Washington secure two armed vessels from the New England colonies for use to capture the British ships. The full Congress approved the plan on the 13th of October, making this the official birthday of the Continental Navy. Washington had difficulty finding ships in New England, but thanks to the lucrative privateer business, so he recommended the Congress look further south. Five merchant vessels were purchased and converted into warships in Philadelphia. The Navy had its first fleet. Now it needed an admiral uh, commander. It selected 57-year-old Isaac Hopkins, a sea captain from Providence, Rhode Island, who had served as a privateer commander during the French and Indian War. Hopkins established the largest ship, Alfred, as, the, as his flagship and assigned a young officer named John Paul Jones as Alfred's first lieutenant. As the first fleet prepared to sail in January of 1776, it raised two flags. Congress approved the Grand Union flag as the official flag of the United Colonies on 3 December 1775, as you see in the lower left of the screen. And Congressman Christopher Gadsden of South Carolina, a member of the now uh, expanded Marine Committee, presented Jones with the flag of his own design, the Gatson flag, on 20 December 1775, as you see depicted in the lower right. Although Congress had established a Navy, it failed to establish the Marines to serve beside it until another fateful event occurred. On November 2nd, 1775, the citizens of Passamaquoddy, Nova Scotia, fueled American hopes of Canada joining the struggle against England as a 14th American colony when their Committee of Safety petitioned Congress to allow its admission into what they quote, the Association of the North Americans for the Preservation of the Rights and Freedoms. Congress responded by commissioning the first Continental Marine officer three days later. On November 5th, 1775, Samuel Nicholas, became the first and therefore senior ranking Marine officer when President of the Continental Congress, John Hancock, signed his commission. Many mistakenly point to this event as designate Nicholas as the first Commandant of the Marine Corps, but that is incorrect because the Congress did not bestow the Commandant with that title until 1798 during the Quasi-War, well after the American Revolution. 31-year-old Nicholas was a prominent figure in Philadelphia. He was born a Quaker and his father died when he was seven. He attended the Academy of Philadelphia, which is now modern day University of Pennsylvania, graduated at the age of 16, after which he became a merchant and owner of the Conestoga Wagon Tavern in downtown Philadelphia. Starting a trend of Marines being affiliated with alcohol, that still stands today. For any of you Marines out there, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, Nicholas would honorably serve as a senior Marine throughout the war from 1775 to 1783. Being the first Marine, Nicholas also became the first Marine recruiter. Following the note from Passamaquoddy, Congress energized the Marine Committee, now represented by five members of Congress, by including John Jay from New York and Stephen Hopkins from Rhode Island, to develop options 
that met in a second story room of Tun Tavern, Philadelphia, making this the accepted birthplace of the United States Marines. On Passamaquoddy's advice, Congress developed a plan for Marines to conduct a naval campaign to capture the British principal naval base in Halifax, Nova Scotia. The committee presented the recommendation to the full Congress on the 9th of November, and the following day, Congress resolved that, quote, two battalions of Marines be raised, that they be distinguished by the names of the 1st and 2nd Battalion of American Marines, making 10 November the official birthday of the Marine Corps. Congress directed George Washington to cherry pick able-bodied seamen from the Army's ranks outside of Boston to become Marines. Washington balked at the thought of reducing the strength of the Army as it still held the British under siege and stated that there was no way that he could conduct a raid against Halifax with the limited resources he had on hand. John Hancock from the Congress acquiesced but determined to still form a body of Marines for service with the fleet. So Congress directed Samuel Nicholas and other Marine officers to recruit their own men. Congress chose to organize the Marines in such a way that they could easily transition from service at sea to operations ashore by planning to establish 10 companies of 50 Marines each. Each company of 50 Marines would be assigned to their own ship and could be consolidated to form battalions for operations ashore if needed. Nicholas led efforts to recruit five companies to man the fleet's first five ships, and he took personal command of the Marine detachment on Hopkins' flagship, the Alfred. A snapshot of Lieutenant Isaac Craigsmardet on the ship Andrew Derea provides a good profile of what a Continental Marine Company consisted of in 1775. Craig's company consisted of 40 Marines, few of which were born in America. They were mostly immigrants from Great Britain, Ireland, Holland, Switzerland, and Germany. All but one of the Marines enlisted from Philadelphia. The average age was 25 and a half years old, with the youngest being 18 and the oldest being 40. Their average height was five foot six, with the shortest being five, three and a half inches, and the tallest Marine being six foot. The Marines brought many skills to their unit. They were carpenters, masons, barbers, bakers, cabinet makers, coopers, jewelers, brass founders, tailors, butchers, painters, weavers, wool combers, millers, laborers, servants, and a single doctor. The American fleet set sail on its inaugural cruise in January, on January 4th, 1776. In all, the fleet consisted by this time of seven ships armed with 110 cannons and manned by 680 sailors and 234 Marines. Hopkins received two sets of orders from Congress. The first set described the conduct expected of the officer and men during their deployment. The second identified several ambitious and quite frankly unreasonable tasks for Hopkins to complete, which consisted of immediately setting course for the Chesapeake Bay, where he was to locate, capture, or destroy the British fleet located there. Once that was complete, he was to continue on to the Carolinas where he was to locate, capture, and destroy the British fleet located there. And if that was not enough, once that was complete, he was to proceed north to Rhode Island and do the same there. However, the orders also included a caveat that Hopkins, Hopkins chose to exploit. It stated that if bad winds or stormy weather or any other unforeseen accident or disaster disabled you disable you to do so, 
You are then to follow such course as your best judgment shall suggest. Hopkins wisely chose to use his better judgment and determined to follow his own plan. He had earlier received an intel report of gunpowder needed by Washington being stored on the island of New Providence, Bahamas. New Providence was once heavily defended. It consisted of two forts, Fort Metangau, which guarded the eastern approach to Nassau, as you see on this picture, and Fort Nassau, which uh, guarded the western approach to Nassau Harbor. Events on the North American continent had weakened the, the island's defenses when a regiment of regular soldiers was sent to reinforce America. But Governor Montford Brown established a 300-man militia force and had one small schooner, the St. John, for protection. Hopkins tasked Nicholas with capturing both forts with 220 Marines and 50 sailors. Unfortunately, the fleet was discovered before the raid and Brown had most of the gunpowder shipped to East Florida before the Marines landed. Regardless, the raid was a huge success with the Marines capturing both forts with 88 cannons, 15 mortars, and an abundance of ordnance. Of note, this captured uh, ordnance exceeds the number of guns transported by Henry Knox from Fort Ticonderoga that most people remember. Brown attempted to escape during the raid and was placed on house arrest and guarded by Marines. He later complained that the Marines, quote, used at discretion all my wines and other liquors as they did everything else they had occasion for. Hopkins loaded Brown and the prizes captured by the Marines and departed for Rhode Island. Brown was later used in a prisoner exchange to secure the release of American General John Sullivan, who was captured in the Battle of Long Island. Strategically, the first amphibious operation achieved by the Marines and, and uh, sailors at New Providence achieved another important objective. It forced the British to employ their naval forces over a broader area in order to protect their other holdings across the globe. As the fleet headed north, the British sent the force up the Delaware River to test American defenses protecting Philadelphia. This resulted in a second stage of recruitment for the Navy and Marines, in which Robert Mullen, the owner of Tun Tavern, would, who would later serve as a company commander under Nicholas, and another Marine named John Martin, or Cato, who became the first American uh, African-American Marine to join the Marine Corps in April of 1776. Hopkins captured several British merchantmen on their way north to Rhode Island but got in a tough battle against the British frigate Glasgow that resulted in the death of 2nd Lieutenant John Fitzpatrick of Nicholas's Mardette on the Alfred, as you see depicted in this painting. This would make Fitzpatrick one of the first Marines killed in action in Marine Corps history. On the, excuse me, on arriving in Rhode Island, Hopkins sent Nicholas back to Philadelphia with dispatches for the Congress. Congress promoted Nicholas on the return and assigned him to recruit four new companies to man four frigates that were now under construction in Philadelphia, which were part of the 13 original frigates that the Congress authorized to be constructed in 1775. Those frigates were the Washington, the Delaware, the Effingham, and the Randolph. In the meantime, Washington shifts his army to New York where the challenges of not having a credible naval force once again played to his disadvantage. 
By mid-August 1776, the British had assembled an army of 32,000 troops, supported by a fleet of 10,000 sailors and 2,000 Marines, manning hundreds of vessels armed with 1,200 guns. Washington at the time had 19,000 green troops and no Navy or Marines uh, to speak of. Like at Boston, he created another ad hoc Navy of his own, using soldiers to serve as Marines, uh, but they accomplished little against such a superior force. The outcome was predictable. The Army faced a string of defeats, starting with the Battle of Long Island in August. Washington achieved a victory at the Battle of Harlem Heights in September, only to face defeat again at White Plains in October. Arnold fought valiantly at Valcour Island on that same month before the Americans faced a devastating defeat at Fort Washington in November, followed by the loss of Fort Lee in New Jersey that same month. And Washington and part of the army being pursued across New Jersey for the next two weeks. This pursuit ended when Washington crossed the Delaware River on the 8th of December. To make matters worse, General Grant had just captured Newport, Rhode Island that same month. These were dire times. Disease, desertion, casualties, termination of enlistments had all dwindled the troops accompanying Washington down to approximately 2,500 men. Something needed to be done to change the tide of war. Washington knew that he had to seize the initiative back from the British or the war could be lost, but he needed more troops. Enter Washington's Marines, which really consisted of four separate groups. I already mentioned the soldier Marines like John Glover pictured here, but several privateers also served as Marines, like 27 year old William Shippen from Philadelphia. He was a merchant and a father of four who started the war as a privateer before commanding the Marine detachment on board the Philadelphia, as you were, the Pennsylvania State Navy's flagship Montgomery. With the British and the Hessian allies now on Philadelphia's doorstep, Shippen went ashore to fight beside the Continental Marines as a member of a Philadelphia militia unit known as the Associators. Unfortunately, Shippen would be killed in the Battle of Princeton in the coming days, making him the first state Marine to be killed in the war. The Pennsylvania Navy at the time consisted of 48 vessels of varying sizes to include two floating barriers, one of them named Arnold, the other Putnam. Each mounted 12 18-pound cannons and manned exclusively by Pennsylvania State Marines. 29-year-old Thomas Forrest, pictured here in the middle of the slide, received a commission in the Pennsylvania Marines in March of 1776. He commanded the Arnold until transferred on October 5th to the Pennsylvania State Artillery to command a battery. Forrest would play key roles in the coming battles. Andrew Porter, who you see depicted on the right of the slide, was a schoolmaster in Philadelphia when he received his commission as a Continental Marine. Many of the Marines of his uh, detachment were reportedly former or current students of Porter's. Porter commanded the Marine detachment on the frigate Effingham and would fight as a company commander under Nicholas in the coming battles. One interesting port, uh, point about Porter is that he later resigned his Marine commission to serve as an artillery officer in the Army. When one of his colleagues, a gentleman named Major Eustace, commented, he is nothing but a damn schoolmaster. 
Corder responded, I have been a schoolmaster, sir, and have not forgotten my vocation. At which point he pulled out his sword and smacked Eustace with the flat of the sword in his back, signifying his challenge to a duel. The two men met on Philadelphia's Ninth and Arch Streets, in which Porter shot Eustace right through the heart and killed him on the scene. He was court-martialed for the act, only to later be exonerated, promoted, and then assigned to the gap billet that Major Eustace uh, now uh, left open. You can't make this stuff up. Nicholas received his orders from Congress to consolidate the Marine detachments from the frigates in Philadelphia and form a battalion of Marines to assist Washington. Nicholas's battalion consisted of approximately 120 to 130 Marines. He left Captain Samuel Shaw and his Marines on the frigate Randolph behind in Philadelphia because that ship was the first to be completed and was preparing to put to sea. The battalion loaded gondolas and headed upriver to Trenton to link up with Washington and his army. In all, Five to 600 Continental and State Marines and sailors operated ashore, and as many as 700 more operated on the armed vessels, contributing and controlling to control of the Delaware River. This compromise, uh, uh, as you were, comprised approximately one quarter of Washington's total force during the 10 crucial days between mid-December and mid-January. Before arriving at the Delaware River, Washington had the foresight to collect all the boats on the river for 70 miles up from stream from Philadelphia. General Howe, leading the British, made a feeble attempt to find boats on his arrival at the river, but finding none, decided to place his troops into winter quarters on December 14, 1776. In order to house and feed the troops while supposedly protecting loyalists in eastern New Jersey, Howe spread the force across 17 isolated cantonments. The area closest to the Americans was controlled by German Hessians that had been hired to fight for the British. The senior officer in the area was Colonel Karl von Donop, who housed his troops uh, in the Burlington, Bordentown area. Colonel Johann Rall commanded a brigade in the Trenton Crosswoods area. As the Hessians settled into their winter quarters, Washington began to gather what forces he could while seeking intelligence to plan an important stroke against the enemy. General Washington knew that he had to meet three preconditions before seizing the initiative. First, he had to consolidate his forces. He did this when he brought the Continental Marines up from Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Militia Associated Brigade, local militia, and called down additional regulars from New York. Secondly, he had to set favorable conditions on the ground in order to take the initiative. He accomplished this through conducting harassment raids to wear the Hessian forces down in the Trenton area, which the Marines uh, actively participated in. And third, he needed the Hessians to make a mistake that he could exploit. And this occurred when Ben Von Donop chased a militia force down towards Philadelphia, placing him a full day's march away from being able to support Rawl and Trent. All three of these preconditions aligned by the third week of December. So Washington devised a plan that consisted of four elements. He would personally lead a, a main element of 2,400 soldiers to cross McConkie's Ferry, depicted on the map here, approximately nine miles north of Trenton, 
to attack the uh, Hessians at Trenton from the north and the west. A support effort consisting of Pennsylvania and New Jersey militia would attack across the Delaware River directly south into Trenton to capture the Ossipunk Creek, uh, Creek Bridge to block any uh, Hessians from escaping out of Trenton as Washington attacked. The Continental Marines and the Philadelphia Associators were located approximately 22 miles south of there at the town of Bristol on the Pennsylvania side. Their mission was to attack across the Delaware in order to establish a blocking position to prevent Von Donop from being able to move to the aid of Rawl and reinforce his positions. And then a final group of uh, militiamen under the command of General Putnam were to cross from Philadelphia and to further disrupt the Hessian forces operating on the New Jersey side across from Philadelphia. As the night progressed and the forces tried to cross the river, unfortunately, Washington's force was the only one to successfully make it across the Delaware on Christmas Day. The New Jersey and uh, Pennsylvania militia that were supposed to cross south of Trenton were confronted by severe uh, river conditions, as you see depicted in the lower right of the photo here. The Associators and Marines actually got two-thirds of their force across the river before the weather uh, turned to the worse, and they were unable to land their artillery and safely land the remainder of their forces. So John Caldwalder, who is in charge of this force, uh, brought his forces back to the Pennsylvania side. And Putnam faced similar uh, conditions down across from Philadelphia. So due to the severe weather, Caldwalder believed that, excuse me, Caldwalder believed that none of the forces had made it across the river safely and was in the process of actually writing to Washington the next morning when he heard cannon fire off in the distance in the direction of Trent. And then he saw signs of fleeing Hessians across the river. He decided to recross the river the next morning to now join Washington as the conditions would allow. So the next morning, the Associators and Continental Marines successively, uh, successfully crossed into New Jersey on the 26th, only to find out that that same day, Washington had crossed back over into Pennsylvania. Coalder began to waffle at this point, and he planned to abort the mission, thinking that his mission was no longer valid with Washington back in Pennsylvania. But the Marines and the others with him were having none of it. They convinced Callwalder to stay and attempted to engage Von Donop's forces, which were now retreating towards Princeton, as you see depicted on this map. Von Donop raced back towards Princeton, where General Grant was stationed with the 4th Brigade, losing about 50 stragglers to Callwalder's force in the process. Callwalder wrote to Washington recommending that he recross the Delaware and then commence security uh, operations and intelligence patrols to gather information about the disposition and composition of the British on the New Jersey side. The Continental Marines were actively uh, participating in these operations. Washington recrossed the Delaware at the end of December and was able to consolidate approximately 6,000 troops at this point outside of Trent to include the Continental Marines. But the Americans were not the only ones preparing for a fight. Lord Cornwallis had gathered forces in Princeton 
and was directed by General Howe to assume overall command and attack and finally defeat the rebels. Understanding that strength lies in the defense and that he was outnumbered, Washington established a strong position on the south side of Assunpunk Creek, outside of Trenton. He focused the defenses on key crossing sites with the principal location being the bridge spanning the Assunpunk Creek, as you see depicted on the right-hand map. Cornwallis and the British and Hessians focused their attacks on the bridge once they made it south and repeatedly attempted to cross the creek to defeat the Americans. As it looked as though they were about to succeed, Washington shifted the forces of Caldwalder and the Marines who were initially located on the right flank to the key location centered on the bridge and repulsed the British for a third time. The British sustained upwards of 500 casualties before they called it a night. Of note, Caldwalder had earlier employed spies throughout the area, as I mentioned, to determine British dispositions and strength. And he provided Washington with a hand-drawn sketch of the British positions in Princeton, as you see depicted in the upper right-hand corner of this slide. Washington would put this sketch to good use in the coming hours. The British pulled back to lick their wounds after their last failed attempt to cross the bridge. And Cornwallis did not want to attack a fortified position on unfamiliar terrain at night. He called for reinforcements from Maidenhead and Princeton to the north with the intent, as he stated to, bag the fox in the morning. But not all of Cornwallis' staff believed that the Americans would remain in their current position with their backs to the Delaware River and an overwhelming force to their front. They were right. Using deception and guise, Washington that evening had a force of 500 soldiers remain behind to stoke campfires and make noise replicating the entire army preparing for battle the next day. When he quietly pulled the rest of the troops out of the line and attacked deeper into enemy-held territory. Throughout the night of January 2nd, 1777, Washington led his force 11 miles north along a little known Quaker road. He intended to attack Princeton using a map produced by Caldwalder earlier to develop his plan. Washington devised a scheme of maneuver that had General Nathaniel Green. I'm sorry, the screen's jumping around there. Sorry, I'm trying to deal with that glitch there. Washington devised a scheme of maneuver that had General Nathaniel Green's division as a support element move north to secure the bridge at Woods Worth's Mill that you see depicted on the left-hand and right-hand maps. They were to block any reinforcements coming back north from Cornwallis located down in Trenton and draw attention from the forces still located in Princeton as Washington, with General Sullivan's uh, division as the main effort, would conduct a flanking attack on uh, Princeton itself. And just as the sun was rising on 3 January, Lieutenant Colonel Charles Mallhood was leading a force of 700 uh, soldiers out of Princeton to reinforce Cornwallis and Trent, still thinking Washington was located there. He was sur uh, surprised to find a large group of soldiers approaching him from the south. This meeting engagement quickly transpired into a battle with General Hugh Mercer rushing forward with his men. 
Unaware of the size of the British force, Mercer was quickly overrun and bayoneted several times. Here in the battle before them, Caldwalder and Nicholas's Marines, who were down in a sunken road, rushed forward to join the fight. Unfortunately, Mercer's men were in a full retreat and ran head on into the Associators and Marines as they tried to form under fire. The momentum of the retreat carried the Associators and Marines back approximately 150 yards before Colwalder and Nicholas were able to regain control of their men. At this decisive moment, Washington arrived on the scene and ordered a counterattack. The Marines and militia charged into the oncoming British and turned the tide of battle. They were reinforced by Continentals closing in on the British from both flanks, causing Washington to shout, it'll be a fine fox chase, my boys, as he personally ran down several retreating British soldiers for miles before breaking off the chase. Sullivan continued with his division to attack toward Princeton and chase the Hessians, <clears throat> excuse me, the remnants of the British into Nassau Hall on the Princeton campus, as you see depicted in this photo. Young Captain Alexander Hamilton, who was a battery commander with Washington's forces, fired his cannon right into the front doors of, of Nassau Hall, supposedly decapitating a picture of King George hanging on the wall, before an infantry unit made entry and captured nearly 200 British that were holding out in this building. In all, the British sustained approximately 450 killed, wounded, captured, and missing. The Americans lost approximately 30. Among them, Pennsylvania Marine William Shippen, who I described earlier. Washington, Knox, and others at this point wanted to continue the attack towards Brunswick, New Jersey, but their force had reached its culminating point. Having been up for over 40 hours with little to no sleep or food and hiking several miles under winter conditions, Washington wisely decided at this point to move his forth into the New Jersey highlands of Morristown from where he would keep a close eye on the remaining British in New Jersey during what became known as the Forge War. Nicholas and his Marines remained with the army during what was this first protracted land campaign for Marines. They conducted guard duty, patrolled, and executed raids against the British until called on once again to leverage their unique skill sets. Henry Knox, commander of the Continental Artillery, faced the conundrum. Due to the disease, desertion, casualties, and terminating enlistments, he now had more cannons than he had qualified gunners to man them. So as he looked around, he identified the fact that Marines had the unique skills that he needed. Marines had experience firing naval cannons on their ships from the time on their ships they could transition those skills now to land canyons, cannons which were very similar to their shipboard guns. They just had different lengths of barrels and different carriages as you see depicted in this photo with the naval gun on the bottom and the land-based cannon on top. And so it was that the Marines became the art artillery corps of the Continental Army under the command of Henry Knox. Although they did not mind this because they actually received extra pay for their expertise. The Marines continued in these duties in support of General Washington in the Army for approximately four more months. Captain Mullen was the first to depart when his company was ordered to escort prisoners back to Philadelphia and report back to his ship, the Delaware. 
The others soon followed. As mentioned earlier, Captain Porter chose to remain with the Army as an artillery officer, and he was joined by his friend Captain Craig, who was Samuel Nicholas's adjutant. Nicholas remained until the end and returned to Philadelphia, where he continued to serve as a senior Marine until the end of the war. He requested command of the Marine detachment on America's first and only ship of the line, a 74-gun monster called the America that was completed in 1782. But the war ended before she ever put to sea, and the United States later gifted the ship to France. Nicholas returned to run in the Conestoga Wagon Tavern on Market Street, Philadelphia, and he remained active in community affairs until his death at the age of 46 in August of 1790. By war's end, 231 officers and approximately 2,000 enlisted men had served honorably as Continental Marines with many more serving as state and soldier Marines. 49 Continental Marines gave their lives in service of their country with another 70 being wounded in action. They established a legacy that those of us in uniform today strive to emulate. The operations surrounding the 10 crucial days comprised the Marines first sustained land campaign, but it would certainly not be their last. In every American conflict for the last 247 years, Marines had served critical roles, winning new laurels in peace and war. Their honorable service continues today. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, thank you. God bless and Semper Fidelis. I'm ready for your questions. Great. Um, thank you so much. That was really interesting. Um, I definitely, in, in my areas of knowledge, skew away from like the actual warfare stuff. So I feel like I learned a lot from this. Um, if you haven't submitted your question, please feel free to submit it in the Q&A or the chat. I am watching both. We do have some questions, though. So let's see. Our first one is from Kathy in the chat, and she says that last week we sailed on the Providence in Alexandria, Virginia. It's a replica of the Katie from Colonial Times. Do you have any information about this ship? I understand that John Paul Jones was the captain. Absolutely. And uh, what a great opportunity. I, I actually live in Springfield, Virginia, and I also went on the Providence fairly recently. If any of you uh, have the opportunity to get down there, it is a uh, exact replica of one of the first ships of the Continental Fleet. And so the Providence did uh, participate uh, in the first amphibious operation down in New Providence, Bahamas, as I mentioned. Uh, it continued to operate with the fleet. Uh, throughout the later years of the war with Marine detachments on board throughout. John Paul Jones did actually command the ship for a short period of time. Uh, he would also eventually command the Alfred and then another ship called the Ranger, which he conducted raids with Marines on the, uh, the English coast, actually. And uh, unfortunately, the Providence was part of a larger uh, operation in 1779 called the Penobscot Expedition. And this was a case, uh, another very interesting story and actually the subject of my next book. Uh, the Penobscot Expedition was established to respond to a British invasion of the Massachusetts Providence, but in the area which is now modern day Maine in Penobscot Bay. Uh, Maine did not become a state until 1820, but the story is that as the rebels gained control of the colonies, they forced many loyalists to abandon their homes. 
And the loyalists who were still uh, serving the crown needed some place to go. So many of them were evacuated to Nova Scotia. But Nova Scotia did not have the infrastructure or the livelihood to be able to support such a large influx of people. So the British devised a plan to actually invade uh, Massachusetts Providence to create what would become, in their mind, New Ireland. So you have New England, you have Nova Scotia, which translates to New Scotland, and they invaded successfully and established what would become New Ireland. Massachusetts Bay Colony uh, created a expedition of 42 ships and ground forces to go and oust the British from this area. And that Providence was one of three continental ships that participated in that operation. Unfortunately, due to many several factors and, and a lack of adequate leadership, every single ship in that uh, expedition was either captured or destroyed. And the Providence met her fate by being put aflame by her own crew to prevent her capture up north near Bangor, Maine today uh, on the Penobscot River. So great question, thank you. That was a great question. Um, from Robert, we have, did the Marines play a role in the 1777 Philadelphia campaign in the defense of Fort Merce, Forts Mercer and Mifflin? That's a great question, Robert, and not directly. However, Marines indirectly participated in defense of uh, Philadelphia and the Delaware River by operating on the uh, Continental ships and the Pennsylvania state ships uh, operating on the Delaware River that operated in conjunction with the defense of Fort Mercer. And, uh, and the land forces operating on the ground. So indirectly, yes, they were part of those operations. And actually, uh, as I mentioned uh, in my presentation earlier, uh, the British had attempted to test the defenses on the Delaware River to see if they could capture Philadelphia via the, the seaward side. And they were repulsed by a force of uh, Sailors and Marines, both state and continental, operating on the Delaware. Another great story where the, the British sent two large frigates, uh, much larger than any vessel that the Americans could put on the river, and the Americans attacked them with uh, individual cannon gunboats. And if you could imagine a swarm of bees thinking attacking a large body, these small single-mounted cannon gunboats uh, swarmed around these uh, two frigates and basically forced them to evacuate the Delaware River and head back out to sea. Uh, so yes, they did participate in the defense on the Delaware, but on the water, not directly inside the forts. All right. Um, from Tim, uh, he asks, at the end of the Revolutionary War, there were, were there any Marines still kept in service? So both, that, that's a very good question. So both the Marines and the Navy were disestablished at the end of the Revolutionary War. And they were reestablished during the quasi-war with France in 1798. And, and that's when I mentioned that the Congress bestowed the title of Commandant on the senior Marine in the, what is now the United States Marines. 
so there was a gap of time between the end of the continent, uh, continental Marines at the end of the American Revolution until the Quasi War, where no sailors and Marines were on active service. And the reason for that is uh, twofold. Uh, one, it's very expensive to maintain ships of a Navy and the sailors and the Marines that serve on that. And secondly, uh, there was still a lot of tension concerning whether America should have a stand in armed forces or should just rely on militia forces that are called up in time of crisis. Uh, many people still were weary of having a stand in army who they believed could gain control of the government, uh, like Cromwell did in England. And that's why George Washington is seen as such a great man, because many people believed at the end of the revolution that he would assume control of the government or could at least assume control of the government. But as we know, he is referred to as a Cincinnatus uh, for willingly and humbly standing down, giving up his power and going to be a farmer back in Virginia. Uh, we have a question from a, another Marine. Colonel Brian O'Leary, retired, is asking in our Q&A, um, do you have any idea how Congress learned of the British Naval Convoy to Nova Scotia in 75? Yeah, they uh, Semper Fi, Colonel, and thanks for the question. Uh, if I understood the question correctly, how did they learn about the British in Nova Scotia? Okay, great. So it was actually the Committee of Safety from the town of Passamaquoddy in Nova Scotia that sent a message to the Continental Congress asking if they could join the Association of the North Americans against England. Uh, it was their intent to break from the motherland just like the 13 American colonies. And with that request, they also sent a, uh, a uh, recommendation that the Americans create a naval campaign to capture the principal British uh, base in Halifax, Nova Scotia. And that was the catalyst for creating the first two battalions of Continental Marines as resolved by the Congress to do. Uh, what I didn't focus on uh, much is the fact that when George Washington balked at the, uh, balked at the idea of pulling soldiers from his army in order to create these two battalions of Marines, uh, they did it, never create those two battalions. That's when the Congress tasked Nicholas with recruiting his own Marines to operate as part of ship detachments that can be consolidated to conduct land campaigns if needed. Great. Um, I'm going to sneak in one of my questions. Um, what was the, the relationship like between the Navy and the Marines? Because we had Marines who were on, on naval ships. What was that, um, what was that like? That's a, that's a great question, because even till today, uh, I would argue that Marines and sailors have a love-hate relationship. Uh, so to clarify for people in today's parlance, uh, we have one department of the Navy. And under the Department of the Navy, we have two separate and distinct services, the Navy and the Marine Corps. Together, we are called the Naval Force. And that relationship began in 1775 when Nicholas first recruited Marines to serve with the fleet. And the responsibilities on Marines in the early days consisted of uh, protecting the captain of the ship against sailors who may be uh, mutineers. Uh, they were to fight the ship, 
and that is by sniping from the fighting tops and lobbing grenades onto enemy ships. They were to repel enemy borders, but also to be boarding parties to capture enemy ships. They maintain good order and discipline on the ships when the sailors or other Marines were getting unruly. And they conducted limited operations ashore as landing parties like you saw happen in New Providence, Bahamas. Uh, to go back to the good order and discipline aspect of the Marines, sailors didn't always appreciate when Marines uh, were using their force to maintain good order and discipline. So that created a, a bit of animosity at times with the crews. And in fact, uh, there's, it's, there's a, as again, I said, a, a good love-hate relationship here. We also banter with each other a lot. So back in the day, you know, one of the nicknames for Marines became jarheads. And that came about during those times because there were lanterns that were hanging from the overheads. And because Marines were generally larger in stature than sailors, the Marines under uh, below decks would hit their heads on these lanterns because they were taller and the sailors started referring to them as jarheads, not necessarily a term of affection. Great, thank you. Um, oh, I want to get this question in before we leave, certainly from Jennifer. Um, she says, thank you for doing this. I am a direct descendant of Captain William Shippen. And can't tell you how much I appreciate this. And she would like to know, how would it be possible to go about getting an autographed copy of your book? Uh, great question. And thanks for asking that. So uh, the publisher of the book is uh, Savas Beatty. That's S-A-B-A-S-B-E-A-T-I-E, -E, two names. And uh, if you get on their website uh, or just Google Washington's Marine Savas Beatty, and you purchase a book through the publisher in the notes section, if you put signed as per Jason, uh, the publisher will contact me and have me sign a book, put any inscription in it that you would like, and I will send it directly to your home. Wonderful, thank you. And if you're interested in that, I've just put a link in the chat where you can get the book on the publisher's website. So be sure to check that out. Thanks right. very much. Uh, so we have just a few more questions in here, and then we'll be at time. Uh, Kathy asks, did the U.S. ever use press gangs to recruit sailors and Marines like the British did? Uh, I think I would be incorrect to say that we did not, but that was not our policy. Uh, we actually did active recruitment, and, and truth in advertising, I'm the former commanding general of Marine Corps Recruiting Command, and so it's near and dear to my heart that the first recruiter was Samuel Nicholas. And uh, the reason that, that there's a myth about Tun Tavern that I briefed, that it's the birthplace of the Marine Corps because that was the rallying point for recruitment. It's true that it was a rallying point for recruitment. And the way we recruited back then is we had fife and drummers uh, march through the streets of cities and neighborhoods and uh, playing the fife and drum to attract people and draw them into the tavern where the recruiters would be waiting to sign them up. And of course, they would entice them with drink and uh, sign-on bonuses if the monies were available. Uh, but typically speaking, uh, Americans are not known for impressment gangs, uh, but I would be naive to say that that likely didn't happen at some points during the war when recruit got challenged. 
And the thing that really challenged the recruitment, uh, quite frankly, were the privateers, because the privateers uh, were able to cash in on captured goods and ships that were sold. They got to maintain a portion of the uh, cash gained from those sales. In fact, the Congress in Washington later authorized Marines and sailors in the Continental Forces to benefit from the sale of captured ships as well in order to help compete with the privateers. All right, um, so we are just about at our time. I'm gonna ask our last question. I try to remember to ask it to everyone. If you could get a drink at Francis Tavern with any revolutionary historical figure, who would it be? Well, I'd honestly have to say George Washington. Uh, you know, I live right down the road from Mount Vernon, and I learn more and more about George Washington. And I tell you, uh, without his steadfast leadership throughout the eight years of the war, we would not have a United States of America. And I'm convinced of that. Uh, it was his persistence, his dedication to the cause, his steadfastness, and his determination and sacrifice that really enabled our country to survive and to flourish, not to mention him being our first president and, and helping to create our form of government as well. So although I'd like to say Samuel Nicholas, if I had to pick, I would say George Washington. Good answer. And Washington was very familiar with Francis Tavern. Uh, Absolutely. I was uh, sharing the story with my wife this evening. That's why I really wish I could be there. And I'll certainly make that pilgrimage at some date in the future. Wonderful. All right. Well, thank you so much for that wonderful presentation. And thank all of you at home for joining us and watching and submitting your questions. If you enjoyed tonight's lecture and would like to stay up to date with all of our programs, you could join our mailing list at the museum's website, francistavernmuseum.org. You will also be able to find our social media and our calendar of upcoming programs. We're taking a bit of a break for the month of August, but our next lecture will be on Sunday, September 10th, bit of a different day, and it will be in person and live streamed as well, so you can join from wherever you are. Thank you to those of you who have donated to the museum. Your generous support helps us fulfill our mission and share the history of the American Revolutionary Era with the public. If you would like to donate and help us keep serving programs like this and keeping our doors open, you can also do that on our website. Again, that's francistavernmuseum.org. Thank you again for joining us for another lecture, and we hope to see you all again soon, either in person at the museum or on one of our virtual programs. Have a great evening, everyone. Thanks so much. God bless you all. I'm Semper Fidelis. <laughs>